please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Let me read those verses, and then I'll pray for us once more. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, as we come now to your word, we need your help. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand where people of all religions can have engaging, exciting, even informative religious services. Lord, but only you can give new life through your word. Only you can give us the eternal life that is communion with you as we come to you. So would you do that now by your spirit? Would you help me to preach clearly and faithfully? Lord, would you give us ears attentive to your word, incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Do us much good for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing on in our study of Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark begins his narrative, you'll recall, by introducing us to a man named John the Baptist. Remember, we saw that John was the voice crying out in the wilderness as Isaiah had predicted he would, preparing for God to come and save his people. We saw that John's ministry was to call people to repentance expressed through baptism and to point people forward to someone who is coming after him, someone mightier than him whose sandals John was not worthy to untie. Last week, you'll remember, we saw that that person to whom John was pointing is Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus is the divine Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And Jesus is the human messianic Son of God, David's greater Son, the prophesied King. We saw Jesus face down Satan in the wilderness as the Son who succeeds where Son Adam and Son Israel had failed. Jesus is the Son we've been waiting for. Well, in our passage this morning, in verses 14 and 15, it seems like what we have here is a headline summary of the main theme of the teaching and preaching ministry of Jesus. That's what I think these verses are. They're a summary of what Jesus came to proclaim. So throughout Mark's gospel, as Mark is telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, which most of it takes place in Galilee, several times throughout that story, Mark will tell us uh, something like this. He'll say, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Or Jesus went out beside the sea and the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Or he'll say, and he went about among the villages teaching. Well, most of the time that Mark says these things, he doesn't actually tell us what Jesus was teaching. We have two extended summaries of Jesus' teaching in chapter 4 and in chapter 13, but most of the time, Mark just tells us Jesus was teaching. 
So it seems like what Mark is doing right here toward the beginning of his gospel, the first time it's mentioned that Jesus is teaching, is he's summarizing for us the central content of what Jesus taught and preached throughout his ministry. When Jesus taught and preached, he taught about many things, and verses 14 and 15 really get at the heart of his preaching ministry. Verse 14 gives us the context of Jesus' message. It says that Jesus begins his ministry after John was arrested. Lord willing, we'll learn more about the arrest of John the Baptist when we come to study chapter 6, Lord willing. It's important to note here that that word arrest, uh, literally that's the word handed over after John was handed over. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus will tell his disciples that he is about to be handed over to the authorities. And what happened to John will happen to him. And significantly, saints, Jesus tells his disciples that for preaching his message, they can expect to be handed over to the authorities. Jesus brings a message of good news that he passes on to his followers, but it's not always received happily. And saints, we shouldn't think that we will always receive a warm welcome everywhere that we bring the gospel of Jesus. Verse 14, as I say, gives us the context of Jesus preaching after John's arrest. Uh, Verse 15 gives us really the content of Jesus' message in concentrated form. It unpacks for us what verse 14 calls the gospel or the good news of God. In our time together this morning, I want to consider this short summary of Jesus' message under four headings, so four-point sermon, four elements of Jesus' teaching that we need to understand. So the first element of Jesus' message is that the time is fulfilled. Point number one, the time is fulfilled. What does Jesus mean? The time is fulfilled. Well, as Mark has shown us, Jesus clearly understands himself to be continuing the story that's begun in the Old Testament, a story that tells of God's dealings with the nation of Israel and really stretches back all the way to the beginning of creation. One of the features of the story of the Old Testament, you'll know, is the presence of predictive prophecy, right? When God tells his people what he's going to do before he does it. We've talked about this for the past two weeks. That's one of the ways that God shows that he's God by his ability to predict what will happen and bring it to pass. Well, by the time the Old Testament was completed, probably about 400 years or so before Mark's gospel is written, God's people had come to see in the individual predictions of the Old Testament, a big picture, right? The predictions of the Old Testament were not just a bunch of isolated sort of stuff that's going to happen in the future. There was, if you zoom out to see it, a plan that's unified, a unified constellation of events, all holding together, as we'll see in a moment, around this idea or this reality of the kingdom of God, So when Jesus shows up and he says, hey guys, the time is fulfilled, what he's saying is that that prophesied plan, that bundle of events, it has begun to unfold with his arrival. So we're going to say more about the content of that plan uh, in a minute, but right now I want to to point out something uh, that may seem obvious, but we often forget it. 
God's plans are very big. And they take a long time to happen. And God doesn't seem to be in a great hurry to bring them to pass. When Jesus shows up and he says, the time is fulfilled. He is resuming a break in hearing from God that his people experienced of 400 years. And he's announcing the beginning of the fulfillment of a plan that was thousands of years in the making. Right? Millions of God's people had lived and died hoping in the salvation that Jesus said he had come to bring to pass. And by the way, not one of those people who lived hoping in the salvation that Jesus would bring, who died before he came, not one of those people was disappointed. Every one of those people who died hoping in Jesus coming, they are very, very happy right now, right? But in God's wisdom, God's people had to wait a long time for God to bring to pass what he had promised. Friends, listen, we live in the age of the 90-minute movie. I was thinking about going to see a movie earlier this week. I didn't end up going, but I, I saw that it was 124 minutes. I thought, oh my goodness, I, I don't even want to go see it now, right? Right, we want problem, conflict, climax, resolution, happily ever after. We want all of that before we even need to go to the bathroom from the Diet Coke, right? Right, God's wise way with his people, it often involves more waiting than we would have liked. And that's because our lives, right, the story of your life, that story is situated within a much bigger story. And the main character of that story, by the way, the main character of your episode in that story is not you. It's God the driving force of the plot of the story of the world and of each of our stories is not the fulfillment of our every wish. Praise the Lord. The center plot of the story of the universe and of our stories, our place in it, is the accomplishment of God's gracious purposes for the manifestation of God's glory. And even though that takes longer than we would like sometimes, trust us, trust God's word, trust, don't trust me, trust God's word that it's better that way because God is wiser than we are. One more observation just to make about Jesus' words that the time is fulfilled given that he has arrived. Saints, we are so unbelievably blessed to live on this side of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul talks about the gospel in this way. He says, the gospel is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
You get the sense that Paul can't even believe that he lives in the time that Jesus has come and fulfilled the time, has manifested God's gracious saving purposes, has begun to accomplish God's plan of salvation. I was listening to a podcast this week about technology, just reflecting on how blessed we are to live now with all of our tech and our medicine and our sanitation and our global markets. I think yes to that, the authors of Scripture would say to us, no, 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 how blessed we are to live in this age in which God has revealed His grace and glory in the salvation that He's worked through His Son, Jesus. Saints, how blessed we are to live now that the time has been fulfilled, that Christ has come, that His gospel has been preached Praise God, the time is fulfilled. We still haven't really said much about what that actually means, right? The time for what is fulfilled. That becomes clearer in the next part of Jesus' statement. Our second point, which is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled for the prophesied plan of God to begin unfolding And what is that plan? Well, that plan is the kingdom of God, which has drawn near, which is at the doorstep, given the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Let me see if I can answer that question for us in two ways from Scripture. Two answers I think the Bible gives to what Jesus means here by the kingdom of God. Of God. So, first, the kingdom of God is the blessed domain of God's rule. The kingdom of God is the blessed domain of God's rule. So, there's a sense in which every square inch of creation is God's kingdom because He is the rightful king over every square inch of the world that He created. But in the Bible, the kingdom of God refers especially and specifically to the domain over which God's rule brings blessing. And by the way, this is how the Bible starts and ends with the kingdom of God, the domain where God's rule is bringing rich blessing. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God is presented to us as the creator king not just as the creator, but as the creator king, right? When God creates the heavens and the earth, he doesn't just bring stuff into existence. You remember, he delegates his own kingly authority. He creates the sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the night, right? He creates mankind and gives mankind dominion, right? Kingly authority, over the fish and the birds and the animals. God sets up his creation kingdom in the beginning. Bible scholars have seen a parallel between the way that after God sort of establishes his kingdom, he rests on the seventh day. They've seen parallels between that and not only other creation accounts, which are very different, but at which, after which the sort of God creates the world and then sits as king over the world. They've seen parallels between God's creation and then resting between other accounts of creation and between other accounts in the Bible, for example, of King Solomon 
At the beginning of 1 Kings, after King Solomon establishes his kingdom, the scripture says that God gave his kingdom rest. Right? So God, in the beginning of the Bible, seems to be presented to us as a creator king. And the domain of this creator king is rife with blessing. It is abounding in goodness. It's a garden paradise kingdom. Right? There's a life-giving river flowing through it. There's the tree of life. We're told that there's gold and beautiful stones in this kingdom. And God is there dwelling with the people that he's created. It's all very good in the kingdom of God. But of course, it doesn't stay very good for very long because Adam and Eve, God's human sub-kings, they rebel against God's royal authority and the blessedness dries up, right? Where there used to be fruit, there is now thorns. Where there used to be blessing, there is now a curse, right? The blessed realm of God's rule, it seems, has been ruined by sin, thorns instead of fruit. But somehow, skipping over the entire story of the Bible, you get to the end and it's been restored. What do you have in Revelation 21 and 22? You find again that God is reigning as king over the new creation kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. His throne is in the middle of a garden city. There's a river flowing through it that gives life. The tree of life is there. There's gold. There's beautiful stones. God's people are reigning under him forever. Right? The happy ending of the Bible is that the blessed domain of God's kingdom gets restored. The story of the Bible is the story of God's kingdom. It's the story of the restoration of his blessed domain, his rule. And by the way, the story of the whole Old Testament is driven by that plot. God's aim to restore his kingdom. God chooses a people out of sinful humanity, the people of Israel. And he brings them to a Garden of Eden-like land, right? He gives them his own good laws. He sets up a human ruler over them. And he promises rich, promised land, Eden-like blessings if they listen to him. The story of the Old Testament is how those people don't listen and the blessing fails to come to fruition or last. So when Jesus comes and he says, hey guys, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Part of what he means is that with his arrival, God is kicking off the plan finally to restore the blessed domain over which God rules. The plan to bring the kingdom back has been inaugurated with the arrival of Jesus. And what is the kingdom of God? First answer, remember two answers. First answer, it's the blessed domain over which God rules. Second answer to that question, what is the kingdom of God? And actually, I think that this, this might be slightly more prominent in what Jesus means here. The kingdom of God is God's royal power in action through Jesus, okay? The kingdom of God is God's royal power in action through Jesus. So we hear that word kingdom 
And immediately we think of sort of a realm, right? The kingdom of Bahrain or the, the, king, the United Kingdom, right? We think of the space over which a rule is exercised. But that word that gets translated kingdom in our Bibles, another way to translate that word is actually as kingship or rule or reign, right? So often... The kingdom of God in the Bible, especially in the teaching of Jesus, it doesn't only refer to sort of the space over which God reigns and brings blessing. It also refers to God's kingly power in action, okay? So one one scholar put it like this. I thought this was really helpful. He says, the kingdom of God is God's kingly self-assertion. God's kingly self-assertion. Maybe think about it like this. Think about the third book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. What's that one called? The Return of the King. All of the nerds mutter under our breaths, right? The Return of the King. Yes, I'm a nerd. I'm not, no no criticism. What is that about? Is it about Aragorn expanding the borders of Gondor? No, not really. It's about Aragorn showing up to act as king in order to save and in order to defeat his enemies, or really just to stall until Frodo can dump the ring in Mount Doom, right? But it's not so much that Aragorn sort of resumes his control over a certain domain. It's that the king shows up and wins the victory in order to save, right? That's what Jesus means when he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, now that I'm here, the anointed son king, God is acting to defeat his enemies and to save his people. God is the rightful king over all creation. And through Jesus, his anointed king, he's asserting his rights to bring everything back under his rule. And that means salvation and rescue for those who trust in him. And that means destruction and defeat for those who oppose the king. So later in Mark's gospel in chapter 4, Mark is going to give us a series of parables that describe for us what the kingdom of God is like. We get more of those parables in Matthew chapter 13, these parables that describe the kingdom of God. And in these parables... What we see is this amazing, dynamic, world-changing reality of God's kingly self-assertion. It doesn't unfold the way that we might have guessed. See, in this age, Jesus teaches in his parables, the kingdom of God, God's royal power in action to save, he actually says it grows gradually. And in some ways, it, it grows imperceptibly. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that starts small, but it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And eventually it's the biggest tree in the garden. Or he says, the kingdom of God is like a tiny bit of yeast that someone takes and they, they hide it in a bunch of measures of flour and they work it through until eventually the yeast has worked all the way through all of the flour. So think about what we heard and our reading from the book of Acts that Ben read for us. Right? Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and Peter is talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter quotes from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in, 
or a most quoted line in the New Testament from the Old Testament. And that line from Psalm 10, 110 is about the reign of the Messianic king. Psalm 110 was one of the prophecies predicting the kingdom of God. And Peter says to his hearers, hey, when Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended and sat down at God's right hand, God has set King Jesus on the throne that he said he would in Psalm 110, right? King Jesus is reigning right now. So let's take over Rome, right? Let's overthrow the government. No, 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 no. That's not how the kingdom spreads, right? Jesus is reigning from heaven. He is acting as God's anointed king to save. And his saving power is spreading throughout the earth like a tiny mustard seed growing up or like yeast spreading throughout loaves of dough, getting larger and larger. You see, the, the kingdom of God is currently in heaven affecting earth saving sinners to Jesus. It's clear from the teaching of Jesus and from the rest of the New Testament that God's kingdom is both present and future. There's a, there's a present aspect to God's kingdom and there's a future when Jesus' kingdom will look very different than it does right now, right? Now, right now, Jesus is reigning as king from heaven and his kingdom power is spreading throughout the earth. But there's a time coming when Jesus will himself come back to earth and he will bring his kingdom to a climax. So there are other parables in Matthew chapter 13 that point to a, a decisive conclusion to this gradual growth of the kingdom. And at that decisive conclusion, the righteous, the sons of the kingdom, are going to be separated from the wicked when Jesus comes back. Jesus says the kingdom is like this net spread that gathers and gathers and gathers more fish, more and more and more fish, until the day the net gets taken up and then the fish get separated, the good from the bad. Right? The kingdom is like good crops, healthy wheat growing gradually alongside tares or, or weeds growing, 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 gradually coexisting, mixed, until the day that it's time for harvest and Jesus comes back and separates the righteous from the wicked. Right? You see, so the kingdom of God is God's kingly power in action through Jesus. And right now, that power, that kingdom is at work in the world to save sinners through the gospel. And when King Jesus comes back again to consummate his kingdom, he will fully and finally rescue all of his people and destroy all of his enemies. And his saving power will have restored the blessed domain of his rule. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says, because I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand, which leads us to the appropriate response that Jesus calls for, given God's kingly self-assertion. Third element of Jesus' message, third point, repent, repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, because God is asserting his kingly prerogatives to save and destroy, Jesus says, listen, if you can hear me, you need to repent, you need to turn around. You need to change your mind. That's what the word repent means. You need to change the way that you are living. So let me explain. So yesterday, May 6th, 
2023, as was alluded to earlier, over 20 million people from around the world tuned in for the televised broadcast of the coronation of King Charles III, the 42nd monarch of the United Kingdom since William the Conqueror. You knew I had to talk about this, right? So with his coronation, it's official. The kingdom of Charles has arrived. But the king's authority is really somewhat limited due to the way that the British government works. No disrespect intended to his majesty. The king has some authority, but it really doesn't stretch very far. And it it doesn't really touch many of the millions of people who watched from other countries, right? King Charles, his kingdom is here. And the next day will look pretty much like the last because of it. Well, just imagine with me that the coronation yesterday had gone somewhat differently, okay? Imagine that as King Charles and his wife Camilla, as they opened the door of the Diamond Jubilee State Coach to ride to Westminster Abbey, imagine that they find you in the cab taking a nap on the bench. You're sprawled out there and you say, oh, hey, hey, Charles, I, look, I know it's your big day, but I'm going to Westminster as well and I'm really comfy. Do you, you think you could just hail a cab maybe? You know, I don't want to get up, right? Right, Charles, the king, would have every right to toss you out. Or imagine that it's time for Charles to receive the sovereign orb, right? The ball with the cross on it. Or the, the sovereign's scepter, right? These symbols of power. Imagine that when it's time for him to receive these things, that you're found playing with them. You're, you know, balancing the orb on the scepter, you know? And you say, hold on just a second. You know, just delay the coordination. I'm having fun here. Hey, can you get the BBC on? Can, can y'all film this? I'm, I'm really good at this, right? Right, Charles would be well within his kingly authority to put a stop to your misuse of his royal possessions, right? If you did that, you would find out what those guards who never smile can do, right? Well, friend, please listen. That's a silly illustration, but it illustrates a very serious point. God is the creator king. His authority is not limited. He has total authority over all things that exist because he created them. You, your body, your life, your possessions, your time, your energy, your heart, they belong to him more justly than the orb and the scepter and the carriage belong to the king of England. And as creator king, it is more proper that he be revered and exalted and glorified every day than it is that King Charles be revered on his coronation day. So friends, here's the problem. We haven't lived like that. We have disregarded the authority of our creator king. We have taken his royal possessions into our hands to do what we like with them. We have not lived in obedience to his authority. So if the kingdom of God is at hand, if God's kingly self-assertion is around the corner, it's time to bring our lives back into submission to the king. 
So friend, listen, if you're, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, first, let me just add my welcome to Dave's who led the service. You are very welcome here. We're delighted that you've come. There's, there's more to say than this, but, but one of the things we want to tell you is that one of the things that it means when someone becomes a Christian is that he or she is stepping off the throne of his life. There's, there's more to it than that, but becoming a Christian means and includes acknowledging that we have lived in rebellion against our creator king. And when we become a Christian, we step off that king in acknowledgement of Jesus' right to rule every facet of our lives. In fact, the Bible is very, very clear. If there's a person who goes to church and calls himself or herself a Christian, but there's no evidence that that person lives like Jesus is king. If that person shows no real regard for the authority of Jesus in his or her life, then the Bible is very clear. That person has not truly trusted King Jesus. That, That person is not a Christian, whatever he or she would say. Being a Christian means trusting that Jesus is king. And that means, friends, that I am not. There's more to say about what it means to be a Christian than that. But that is integral to it. So for those of us who are believers, those of us who are Christians, when the Bible speaks about repentance, it isn't only talking about conversion or about the moment that we become a Christian. So Martin Luther Uh, the famous reformer put it like this. He said, when our Lord and master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That is to say the Christian life, because Christians aren't yet perfect, is a life of continually, repeatedly turning from sin to King Jesus. That's what it is to be a Christian, to live a life not of perfection. The Bible doesn't teach us to expect that we'll live lives of perfection, but to live real lives of genuine, continual, earnest repentance. So brother, sister, does that dynamic characterize your life? Is is there a regular acknowledgement that your thoughts and words and deeds and motives, and priorities are not yet perfectly conformed to the will of King Jesus. Not just kind of a general acknowledgement, yeah, I make mistakes, but a a clear recognition of the ways that we transgress the commands of King Jesus. And is there, by God's grace, a clear pattern when you recognize that of turning to Jesus in repentance, in change, in obedience to him? Is there a pattern of slow growth in bringing your life into conformity with the will of King Jesus? Is that the direction that your life is heading above all others? Christian, is there there anything about your life that you know stands out as contrary to the will of King Jesus that you're not doing anything about? I'm not asking if you struggle. We all struggle, right? But is there anything in your life that's contrary to the will of King Jesus that you're happy for it to to be that way? 
Is there sin from which King Jesus would call you to repent even this morning? Listen, the Christian life is a struggle to remember who the king is and to bring our lives into line with that reality. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Fourth and finally, Jesus calls us, he urges us, he commands us to believe in the gospel. That word gospel means good news. Jesus commands us to believe in the good news of what his kingdom means for all who will turn to him. See, because we are sinful, because we are selfish, because we are wise in our own eyes, the call to repent, it might seem to us like bad news. Because repentance means that I don't get to do what I want to do anymore. And I know what's best. But listen, you wouldn't think like that if you knew how good this king is. See, God's kingly self-assertion means that he calls his people to submit to him. But it also means more than that. God's kingly self-assertion also means that King Jesus has come to rescue sinful people. See, the Bible teaches that our sin and rebellion against our creator king have created a bigger problem than we can fix by trying really hard to repent. Right? This is how reality works. You break the law, you decide to stop breaking the law, and guess what? You've still broken the law. There are still consequences. Right? Our repentance can't pay for our past debts. Our sin and rebellion against God have created hostility between us and God. We've incurred a moral debt before him. And by the way, unless God acts to free us from the reign of sin in our hearts, ain't no way we're going to repent because we don't love him. But the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is that the king has come not only to assert his rights, but to save his people by dying for them as a substitute. What kind of king will Charles III prove to be? Don't know. With all due respect, for us in America, it probably doesn't really matter that much. But one of the reasons that Mark has written this gospel is to show us what kind of king Jesus is. Listen, let me read to you from the gospel of Mark about the coronation of King Jesus from Mark chapter 15. Mark writes this, he says, and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers of whom Jesus is a prisoner, they led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, a crown of the curse that we brought into God's domain through our disobedience, a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. Saints, why does it happen like that to King Jesus? 
Why is the one true king treated like this? Why is his crown a crown of thorns? It's because the king came to die as a substitute for sinners and rebels who would turn to him to be saved, right? Jesus calls people to submit and to believe in his mercy extended to them in the cross that they might be saved. What is the gospel? What is the good news that Jesus calls us to believe now that his kingdom is here? Jesus calls us to believe that God is acting through his anointed king, Jesus. He's asserting his royal power to save. And we who read Mark's gospel know that he has acted to save through the cross and the resurrection of his son. The gospel, the good news, is that Christ, the anointed king, died for our sins, just as the scripture said he would, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose from the grave, just as the scriptures said he would. And now King Jesus offers forgiveness and mercy and life in his kingdom to everyone who will turn to him. Friend, don't you think you can trust that king with your life? Is there anyone whose authority you would rather be under than this king? Friends, don't you see that there's nothing better than being a part of this kingdom? Christian, can't you see that there's no better way to go through life than in a life of continual repentance and obedience and trust toward this king? in a life of faith in his dying love to save us. Let's pray that God would help us to do that now. Father, we thank you for your saving mercy to us in King Jesus. Lord, we thank you that when you, through Christ, showed up in your royal power, you came not to condemn but to save, to offer mercy Thank you for the gospel, Lord, that this king has borne the crown of thorns that we deserved to wear. Lord, that we who trust in him will one day dwell with you in his perfected kingdom forever. Father, we pray that you would bring our lives more and more into conformity with the authority of Jesus, that you would move us to submit to him as our king, to trust him as the substance of the good news Lord, as the one in whom you extend grace to us. Lord, I pray that if there are any here this morning who don't know Jesus, Lord, who don't yet belong to his kingdom, that you would save them, that you would give them faith and repentance and trust in the gospel. Lord, bless us now as we come to you in the Lord's table. Give us faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.